What nobody tells you about talent with The Chemistry Group. A very warm welcome to this, the Chemistry Group podcast series. Um, I'm Simon Court and I'm joined today by Roger Philby, who's the founder and CEO of Chemistry Group. And today we're going to talk about talent, the uh, vaunted war for talent. And we're going to talk about why his time peace broke out, in fact. So, Rog, tell us, why are we doing this podcast? Well, I think it's because between us, we have about 100 years worth of experience, uh, weighted towards you, clearly, Simon, um, in studying and understanding human performance at work. So if we're going to have peace break out in the war for talent, I think a discussion between people who've sort of spent their lives studying it would be good. I also think that we both have a belief that the playbook that leaders are using today is not the playbook they're going to need to use in the future. And it's going to have to be far more people and human centric, less P&L and strategy centric. So because we have that shared belief, hmm. um, I think hopefully we'll have a, a, a decent conversation about it. And I think it's super important because as the world gets obsessed with AI, I think, again, you and I have a shared belief that actually it's the human cost and opportunity that fascinates us most and should probably fascinate organizations and companies, I would have thought. I think that's true. Um by the way, is deep experience a euphemism for old? Definitely, it is. I was at Centre Parks this weekend and I'm feeling my age. It actually hurts <laughs> to blink right now. Don't go so. there. Don't, don't go there. It does mean that we've seen an awful lot of change in our lifetime. And I guess some of it is for the better, but maybe not all of it, right? Yeah. I love to be optimistic. What's the word? Optimistic. I am an optimist by nature, and so I didn't want to jump on and start talking about the woes of the world. Um, but actually, I am optimistic about the problem being solved. I'm not particularly um, happy with where we are. I mean, if you look at any of the data, Google Gallup engagement data, you'll see that we have the most disengaged workforce in history. Is that right? Yeah. So right now, there are more people who are not happy at work, are disengaged at work, and therefore you could conclude not productive than at any time in our history. Um, and so the question for me is, whose fault's that? Because I don't believe people turn up for work to be disengaged. So who fault's that? That sounds like a good question to answer, but let's let's leave that as a bit of a cliffhanger. And we better just say a little bit about ourselves. So on the basis that I won't get a word in edgeways otherwise. I'm going <laughs> to... You go first. And age comes before beauty. I'm, I'm going to start. So just... I've been developing coaching leaders and leadership teams for about 30 years. And I currently spend, probably for the last 10 years, most of my time coaching and helping founders to become better leaders and to build better leadership teams, which is the subject of a book I've got coming out next year. I'll, I'll try not to talk about it too yeah, much. Yeah, I was going to say, plug. But it's called Founders Legacy. And uh, I also chair a leadership consultancy called Value Partnership, which I founded about 25 years ago. So that's enough about me. Um, tell us about you. Usual humility, Simon. You are the <laughs> man to talk about leadership and, and, and leadership. So, uh, so I'm Roger. I've been in the business of humans at work since I was 21. So that's now 31 years. I know, I know, I know. Um, um, but central to my work has been trying to get to the heart of a question, which is how could you more accurately predict human performance in the workplace? So that's been a 
31-year-old obsession, an obsession that sort of manifested itself in 2001 when I quit my corporate job with three, year, three kids under five years old, remortgaged my house with my long-suffering wife uh, and started the chemistry group. Um, and which I now have the privilege of leading, but but 31 years answering the central question, which is how could you accurately predict human performance in the workplace? So let's get into today's topic then. Um, I mentioned the war for talent and uh, in my introduction, you know something about this. And I know that the book, uh, McKinsey book in 1997, really triggered you and uh you know because i mean the argument if i understood it correctly and uh it, we're still living with the kind of fallout from this argument i think is that you know we should aggressively hire promote and reward the top talent mm. and ruthlessly cull those who don't make the grade and that we were in a war uh, both an internal war to promote the best people, uh, whatever that means, and we are also in a war with our competitors in the war in the, yeah. the market for talent. Mm. So, well, so what's what's the problem with that as an idea? You're right; it did trigger me. And as you know, I, I don't advocate book burning, but I have <laughs> I have burnt a few of these <laughs> uh, books <laughs> that you've seen me do. I so, saw it. Yeah. Um, but it, because the book's fundamentally based on the premise that there are talented people and not talented people. By the way, denigrating the war for talent is not hard because its central case study was Enron. So <laughs> I, I do feel like I might be kick, kicking a dog when it's down. Um, but um, and, and also, I think it, I, I suppose it's personal. It kind of pisses me off mm. um, because the, 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 the sort of founding principle of what talent is in that book, and I see it in other places too, is about intellect. Mm -hmm. um, and the proxy for intellect is which university you went to. So there's this thing that education actually is a sort of preordained view of talent. Did I go to the right university? Did I get the right grades? Um, and we know that because that's the system in this country too. So as a kid who went to a state run-of-the-mill state comp and then went to um, a run-of-the-mill borderline below run-of-the-mill uh, university, you could have called it a college, um, I suppose I have sort of a confirmation bias um, you do. against you, you that, definitely do that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that system but but i think if we define talent as emron did pretty much i mean i'm i'm slightly exaggerating but not much as kids who went to select schools and then went to a handful of ivy league universities and had a gpa over x then i think we rule out an incredible amount of talent on a, a fundamental level i don't think that's right um, and mm. then statistically, I can tell you it's not right um, through through all the work we've done. Um, and, and I think the system, especially in the UK, but it's also true in the US, the system actually confirms and affirms that belief at every, every step. Yeah. Um, you only have to look at how employers employ to understand that that is the truth of it. I, I can sit here and say, no, your education doesn't matter, but it does. There's an entire system built around it. it, it it's actually a rather weird definition of talent when you think about it, isn't it? And I, and as I've been coaching founders, I've come across some less famous examples, but there are some famous examples. Richard Branson left school at 16 and struggles with dyslexia. We've got Steve Jobs, Daniel Ek, Spotify founder, dropped out of college. Mm. Um, so it's, it's quite obvious it's not as important as some of our um, 
corporations and our society seems to think it is, but and yet and yet here we are. But we better we better convert this into a company story. Can mm. you can you just help us to understand what this looks like at a company level? Yeah, sure. So if I take um, one of the top graduate, but I'm not going to name them, one of the top graduate <laughs> employers in the UK who who we looked at their graduate intake. You know, they said, look, you know, we'd really like you to have a look at the graduate intake. And um, I'm like, what business problem are we trying to solve? Well, we're trying to identify future leaders. That feels like a reasonable thing for a graduate um, intake to look at, future leaders. Um, but but then we, we looked at, okay, so how are you selecting them today? Well, we only select them from eight universities, Russell Group universities. Okay, that's interesting. Why? Well, because we want the best of the best. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So only the best talent goes to Russell Group universities yeah, yes. Okay. True. Maybe. Don't know. Um, okay. So do all of your leaders, next obvious question comes from Russell Group Universities. Actually, let's ask a really important question. Do all your high-performing leaders come from Russell Group Universities? It's a really interesting conclusion to completely sort of dispel quite mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. Because if you really, if the idea is these people are coming in to be leaders, then the definition of what great looks like is what the high-performing leaders look like in this particular organization. So that's what chemistry did. We looked at what predicted high performance at a leadership in this level. And then you regress that data back to what you need to take in when they're fresh young graduates. So what did you learn? We learned a couple of things. First, that cognitive ability, they used an inter standardized intellect assessment, as most graduate employers do. The first thing we learned, that cognitive ability was not a predictor of whether you'd be a high, a high performing leader or a low performing leader. Interesting. The second thing is educational background had absolutely no correlation to performance in a leadership role. Which when I say it, I'm sure people listening will go, well, that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, but we constantly look at it. Yeah. Um, we know it's instinctively not true. Instinctively, but we look at it. And I, I have to say, you know, so we've both got children. When our children were thinking about universities, did we say to them, look, any university will do? Of course we bloody didn't. Mm. Right, because we're in bought into the system. We know it's fundamentally unfair, but we have to play it. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's okay for you and me because we've got money mm -hmm. and we can give our kids opportunity and all of that good stuff. Yeah. Does that mean our kids are more talented than kids who don't get that opportunity? Absolutely bloody not. No, it's exclusivity, right? isn't it? It is. Our education systems become like a Birkin handbag, right? It's a, it's Hermé. <laughs> it, it's not a society. It's not there for society's oh, benefit. Hermé. It's, it's a luxury brand, darling. Is that Hermes? Uh, no, it's Hermé. <laughs> You've clearly never bought a Birkin handbag. Um, so, um, so let let me let's come back to what I was talking about. Um, so, so what we were able to do with that particular organisation was okay. Let's dispel those two things, right? Mm -hmm. Then, then what are we looking for? How do we select? potential graduates. So we took them from eight universities to 230 colleges and universities. We embedded what we understood high-performing leadership looked like in the graduate selection process. Mm -hmm. um, and we did that in a whizzy online way so we could go out to 230 universities and not increase the um, recruiter time. And then we designed an assessment process that was free of bias, that just lit a fuse under the best candidates for that so that role. can you give us just like one example? I know you can't share the whole story yeah. because of client confidentiality, but just give us a glimpse of the sort of things that were important in terms of predicting leadership. So what one of the things that was important, as, in, as an important now more than ever, is an individual's ability to deal with complexity and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. 
right? Which, believe it or not, we can measure. And so that was one thing that we were able to measure um, in a way that was culturally normed. So we weren't biased against anyone from mm-hmm. a particular ethnic background, but we could see their approach. And look, the, as soon as you do this, as soon as you level the playing field, as soon as you level the playing field, what happens? So before they started looking at talent in a different way from a scarcity to an abundance, i.e. scarcity, they're only existing eight universities to abundance, they could be anywhere, mm-hmm. right? We went from, they'd only ever hired 31% uh, females or women into their cohort. Um, that cohort, they took 51% of the cohorts women, which is a great shock because 51% of the population is obviously <laughs> women, so that's quite nice. Um, they have more people from ethnic and different socioeconomic backgrounds than they'd ever had before. Great shock, you went to 230 universities, not eight. Yeah. But my point is, as soon as you level the playing field, the talent reveals itself. When the playing field slanted, yeah. then the talent can't reveal itself. And and that's why I object to this war for talent. It It's fundamental premises. There are talented people and not talented people. And I'm here to say that's not true. There's talent in abundance. Yeah, it's, it's a, a point very well made and the story is powerful. I, um, I have my own experience of this. If I go back uh, to the 90s when uh, the telecommunications world was reaching a sort of major watershed because the fixed network in the UK was nearly done. And I was part of the management team of Ericsson at the time and we had to pivot to mobile. Mm, and yeah, I mean, and honestly, the the predictable world of rolling out a new digital network to British Telecom over multiple years was no preparation at all for the wild west of all these <laughs> yeah. new mobile phone operators growing up and they all wanted their own unique sort of relationship with Ericsson. So Ericsson had to split from one business into four very commercially astute dynamic businesses. And I, it was like a, a sea change really. And uh, I vividly recall, we decided we would run some development centers, which are a form of assessment center to try and figure out whether we had the kind of people yeah, who could yeah, lead yeah. those new businesses. Yeah. And we, we didn't, we absolutely didn't. Yeah. And, and actually the thing that really strikes me about that, I mean, I, I struggled, I produced this data and I showed my colleagues on the senior leadership team and I said, look, we're not going to find these people on the open market. Nobody's done this before. So we need to build these people. Yeah. We need to develop them. Yeah, we needed, exactly. to, in, we needed to invest. Yeah. It's a really hard case to win. Um, and, then, and then just to finish that story, I mean, because I'm supposed to be interviewing you. I mean, there was this, um, I think Ericsson lost two out of four of those contracts. And I think you can directly track that back to that failure to invest and to be ready for that yeah. moment. Yeah. And so at that time, I guess the decision not to invest maybe a hundred thousand in the development of those leaders looks cheap as chips yeah. at that point. And Completely. I, 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 I say that because I, I really relate to the notion that we need data to be able to solve for yeah. these problems. It's not enough for us to just say, is an act of faith. We we've actually got to sort of somehow prove yeah. the point. So what 
what's really going on here? What's the heart of the problem from your point of view? I, I, think, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a data problem. Um, it's an absolute data problem. Um, it's why I started chemistry and it, it's, it's in abundant now. And if we take the Ericsson example where you were asking for £100,000, let, let's look at an example um, that people care about more than anything else in the UK that has unlimited resources, but they're still managing, pardon the pun, to balls it up in spades. Um, let's take football. Okay. Do we have to? Yeah, well, you're a Spurs fan. I'm a Liverpool fan. I'm <laughs> going to enjoy this. You're not. But, but basically, um, if we focus on this thing that we really care about, and, and there's an, an incredible amount of money piled into. So this is, again, personal, because these things generally are, aren't they? Is, uh, so my son at one point was one of the top three centre-backs in the country. He was playing against Foden and Saka. And, um, and, um, however, he didn't make it. Um, and the question I always have is, is that because he lacked talent? Um, is he not talented? Um, but then the, the question for the world of football is, the premium that we apply to English Premier League players is based on a scarcity. And I can tell you from being in that system that that scarcity is driven by institutional stupidity. Um, uh, so I sent, in 2015, I sent a team of psychologists into a Premier League academy. And the sole question they had to answer was, at the age of 6, 10 or 15, could we predict who would be a Premier League footballer? Mm -hmm. Right? Who would make the first team? And so we did this incredible study um, that, by the way, I offered to the FA for free and they turned it down because they had a roadmap and they didn't want any further information, which I thought was quite interesting. But anyway, so, so if you just look at the results of the football industry, you would say that it drives abundance. There isn't a single kid, boy or girl born that, you know, at one point wouldn't want to be a Premier League footballer um, or a WSL footballer. Um, uh, and so we have this abundance of talent, but at the end, a scarcity. Yeah. Right. And this belief that there can only be one of these or two of these or three of these. So it's a really good example of abundance to scarcity that's mirrored in organizations. But uh, I'll just make it analogous to football. So why does that happen? What actually happens? Mm -hmm. Right. So what actually happens is at five or six years old, when these scouts go out to watch these kids, they have three things they're looking for. Physicality, speed and dynamism. That's the three mantras, right? And so if let's just concentrate on boys because that's what the study was done on. It was back when uh, the WSL didn't exist. Um, physicality, speed, and dynamism. So one of the really crude things we did was the first thing we did was we took the date of birth of all of the kids in the academy the time we did the study, okay? Mm -hmm. How many of those kids, what percentage of those kids do you think were born between let's say, October and February. A pretty high proportion, I'm waging. 90%. Oh, <laughs> that's not that high. I didn't expect that. 90%. Because these boys at that sort of age are all over the place, aren't they? You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, you've, got the, you've got a massive great... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, at under 10s, you've got that striker who's got a moustache and, you know, huge muscles <laughs> up against a little kid that's clearly not had his spurt yet. Yeah. But, but the point is that because of football in the UK and it's the same with ice hockey in Canada, it's based on the school year. Mm. It's no surprise when your data, and this is why it's a data problem, is physicality and speed and dynamism. What you are watching when a kid's six or seven years old is the oldest kid in the class. Yeah. Then you wake them out, give them special attention and special coaching. By the time they're 13 or 14, they're the best footballer in their peer group. So when the scouts are watching 
them playing a practice game or in a competitive game, they're immediately drawn to the, yeah, the big kids. Yeah. yeah, little Johnny who scores 20 goals because yeah. he's two foot taller than everyone else at his age. And they can knock right? the other kids over. Yeah, yeah, and, and kick the ball 30 yards. It's yeah. not... So, but but the point is that's happening in back to my corporate example it's the same thing it's the same principle you're measuring the wrong data to solve that problem what you should have is two academies one right you should base the academies on physicality until the physicality starts to even itself out yeah right and then all of a sudden you take scarcity to abundance yeah yeah okay yeah, so yeah. i i would uh, by the way i think messi was born in june so you know just to disprove completely um, physicality, speed, and dynamism. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's just another example of where we have talent abundance, which is the topic, um, this war for talent um, that we create through institutional stupidity in a industry and environment that has more money than God. So how do you carry that idea of, because I, I can see there's a huge amount of waste in that process. I mean, the stories you've told so far is is in a way a story of waste, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and uh, even those who make the cut in football, there's a huge wastage rate mm -hmm. uh, right through to the top of the game. Yeah. So what does that... I mean, let's go back to business again because I think yeah, most of the people listening that. to this <laughs> are interested in that. So what is? how can we use that understanding to improve the way we think about talent in businesses? So I think we should think about it as in, have we fully um, have we fully accessed the potential out there? Okay. So if you take those graduates, right? So if, if we run with the belief that in order to be high performing in one of those graduate employers, you have to be a graduate, hmm. that excludes 442,500 kids a year, right? So you, are you telling me that of those 442,500 kids, none of them could be a super talented leader, software engineer, product person, marketing person, HR person in any of those organizations. Seems to be the case, yeah. Yeah, right? That's what the system would tell you. Mm -hmm. The reason we want our kids to go to Russell Group universities is because the system excludes other kids who might be talent. So there's, so you're right, it's a waste. Actually, there's a definition for it called human capitalization rate. Okay. Um, economist called Jim Flynn came up with it. I can't be accredited with it. Um, human capitalization rate is the potential of any given community that has been fully realized. Mm -hmm. So to use an example, Jim uses um, in the S&P 500, um, the human capitalization rate of black Americans that could take a management role, have the potential to be a manager in an S&P 500 company is 16%. That's an 84% waste rate, if I understand exactly. your argument. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And it's a data problem because we're not accessing that talent pool. Mm. So when the Daily Mail headline is, we can't hire, we're struggling to hire, we can't find talent, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. you're just not looking with the right set of lenses. And yeah. that, that's why it's a data problem. Now, not all of it's organizations fault or our fault or what are that, you know, poverty is probably the single biggest challenge to human capitalization rate, poverty and ed lack of education is a real fallback. I'm not saying education is a waste. I'm just saying that that, you know, that lack of opportunity is a real, a real challenge. So that, that human capitalization rate is a really interesting measure of a healthy society in a way, because it, if that rate was universally high yeah. uh, across all demographic groups, you'd have a sense of, uh, 
fairness and opportunity yeah, you'd have for, for, field. for everybody, yeah, which, yeah. which, you know, it's very hard to argue against that. And neither of us are certainly going to do that. So, but isn't this a better way of managing productivity in companies though? Because the traditional way we measure productivity is to do with output cost and versus yeah. output. So, but this is, this is actually about saying if we have a hundred thousand employees, or even if we have 10 employees, are we really getting maximizing the full potential. maximizing their potential and their contribution? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way of looking at it. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that keeps me up at night, which is how am I maximizing the potential of my entire workforce? I only have 55 people. But is there any of that is going to waste because I'm playing them in the wrong position or I'm trying to get them to do things that their skill set doesn't apply to? Now that all impacts human capitalization rate. Yeah. And so if I was a manager or a leader in a business today, I'd be looking at my team and going, See, what's the human capitalization rate of my team? If, if we believe they have 100% potential, what am I getting from them today? More importantly, ask them. Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. so I would attest, you know, these organizations that are like reskilling. So the cool thing in the market at the moment is let's buy some technology to audit our skills. I'm like, that, that's really interesting. But actually, right now, the thing we should be focused on if you've got, I would advocate, if you've got an organization of, I don't know, 10,000 people or more, unless you're going through some uber growth, um, you probably don't need to hire a single person for the future you're moving into, right? You could reskill, relearn, set a culture up. Um, again, talent is abundant. That doesn't mean to say you need to go externally for it. I would argue talent is abundant internally. There are... But organizations are reaching for AI skills at the moment, right? And it's creating a scarcity, wage inflation, Mm -hmm. all of the stuff that scarcity brings, right? There are probably people in their organizations that know more about AI than the experts they're courting externally. Those people just don't believe the opportunity to bring their true self or their full potential to that environment is the thing that... Okay, that, so you're, you're basically saying, uh, going back to the whole theme of this podcast or this episode of this podcast is that we're not really in a war for talent. We're actually surrounded by yep. talent and we should focus our energy on understanding that and trying to exploit the potential embedded yeah. in that. And that actually creates a virtuous circle for yeah. both employees and companies because it's a win-win, isn't yeah. it, really? And yeah. and your argument about 24,000 employees, which strikes me as a bit random, but what, what you're basically saying is when, when a firm reaches a certain level of maturity and uh scale yeah. and it's not in its kind of classic entrepreneurial phase once you've yeah. developed your your product market yeah. Yeah. fit solution yeah. and then you go through scaling mm -hmm. but when you get beyond that yeah and you have a relatively stable workforce or it's growing yeah. at a much slower rate then you should be able to meet your talent yeah. needs from within the existing workforce yeah i would argue if you've got an organization of hundred thousand people how many of those people do you know Okay, very so few, right? Yeah, very few. Um, probably the same two or three hundred names come up every time an opportunity comes up. I would have thought, um, especially if you're running an international organisation. So, so the game in town is how do I create an environment where opportunity? It, so you, I've talked about an equal playing field when we're hiring people, but what about an equal playing field internally? I would advocate that that lack of engagement and attrition in organisations is largely felt by employees who don't believe there's an opportunity in that organization for them to develop their career and fulfill their potential. So 
if I, if you take the CEO remit, if the CEO remit has been built on a, you know, come back to where we started. If you, if you come back to the playbook, right? If the playbook is about PL management, shareholder management, stakeholder management, and that's primarily where a CEO has been, very finance oriented. Most of them are ex CFOs, I think, the vast percentage. If we turn that into actually the role of a CEO is the chief capability development officer, and the new gold rush is going to be those organizations that can develop capability from the people they have and create environments where people can fulfill their potential there. I think that's where, if, if you look at the FTSE, the S&P, I think the organizations that nail that over the next 20 years, because they're trying to solve problems that haven't been solved before in a market and environments that are more complex and ambiguous. And so you've got this incredible, I hate using the word asset, which could evolve into that for you. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking at it and going, well, why wouldn't you do that? Feels kind of easier, I mean, frankly. CEOs are, I guess they're, uh, I mean, we're talking about what is the role of the CEO here? And I, I sort of fear in some ways, some of them are being pulled in all sorts of directions by all sorts of agendas. And, and in some ways, the uh, there's not a focus in far too many CEOs on their own growth and development, and which is why I, I find myself in quite, business. quite busy as a <laughs> as a coach in helping them to navigate some of these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, I know. So I'm not complaining, obviously, but but I mean they've got to take their own growth seriously to take the growth of people in their organisation yeah, seriously. Yeah, and that's right? a fundamental problem. So a chemistry have been measuring leadership behaviour for 21 years. Um, since the pandemic, um, the single biggest impact on that is that the percentage of leaders globally who are spending, the time that leaders are spending on self-development has declined at a higher rate than any other behavior in leaders since the pandemic, according to our data, which is swiftly followed by the capability. Of, so at a time when, you know, someone like me saying, the gig in town is to develop capability, all the behaviors, leadership behaviors associated that are in steep decline since the pandemic. Hmm. And so I think, you know, actually a renewal of that, a belief that talent is abundant. It's abundant in my own organization. It's abundant in the external market. And thinking about what do I need to measure? What, do I, what data points are gonna help me develop the capability that I need? Um, I think is, as I said, I think it, it, it's how you're gonna create business value. It's how your organization is gonna thrive. I would suggest it's always been true, Yeah. but it's never more true now. Yeah, and perhaps now we're in a place where we can actually win that argument. I think so. Uh, the, you know, again, the engagements with organizations that chemistry are having, I have never seen the C-suite so engaged in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so understanding of its strategic importance. So again, if we come back to the beginning, um, I'm really optimistic that we'll solve this, but you have to, your starting point has to be that talent is abundant, not scarce. So Roger, we better talk about what we're gonna do next. Yes, yeah, so good news, depending on your viewpoint, is that there will be more episodes um, and, um, and the next episode, I'm going to be talking to you um, about your passion, I think, lifelong subject. So, Mighty Yoda, what are we talking about in our next podcast? <laughs> We're going to talk about 
the art and the science of creating high-performing teams. And uh, it's another story where um, of missed opportunities and and what you can do to really exploit the positive opportunity. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. And just to say thank you so much for today. I've loved talking to you. Uh, it's not like the first time we've had a chat. <laughs> no, it's but, I mean, I, I really enjoy talking to you. And it's been so interesting unpacking your thinking about you know, the the potential that's out there, if we could just grasp it. Yeah, thank you. What nobody tells you about talent with The Chemistry Group. <laughs>